I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's Lentz or like if uh, running for this half marathon has gotten me in like just a zone of being like a relatively productive human being. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Are you ready to be a life coach, dude? Have you have you mastered it? Ah. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hoping to have something ready by the time we recorded today, but uh, it looks like it's might going to have to wait till next time we record. But just as a little sneak preview, maybe if I get an email during our recording, I'll I'll put this in, but um, it looks like t-shirts are happening, boys. Oh. Yeah, we're going to get some t-shirts. Uh, oh, my goodness. That's awesome. Very <laughs> handsomely designed by uh, designer of the logo, Ethan Danstrom, my brother. And then yes. he's oh, been on the podcast, friend of the cast. Friend of the cast. And another friend of the yes. cast who suggested the idea for the design, which I won't spoil, um, Stephanie Espinosa, who came to... Uh, mass here at newman a couple weeks ago she was in town oh, for a conference. did we get an email from her too cool. yeah, yeah 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 she was the one That's who suggested awesome. the design to me on twitter oh and gosh. then later came and uh we had a nice brunch her me and danielle center and her friend julia it was just like this shout out as always weekend of um intense catholic women coming to visit me and having brunch it was pretty it was pretty <laughs> dope <laughs> uh so that's coming we didn't we didn't have a board meeting about the about the approval of the logo. Hey, that's true. About the t-shirt? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, yeah, we didn't. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about that is it's true. I'm purred happily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is that Parks and Rec? Yeah, that's a Parks and Rec. <laughs> I'm purred happily. Dude, that's purred. awesome, man. The word um, of purred. It's yeah, no, perfect it's... because that supports what I was going to say, which is we're awesome. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yes. it's yes. amazing when people recognize just how <laughs> awesome we are. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. I think people are really going to like this T-shirt. I'm going to buy one for sure. You guys need to. I, I can't commit. Uh, I cannot commit. I can't. <laughs> I, I'll buy one. I probably won't wear one, to be honest. I'm, like, I don't, I'm not really down yeah. with being seen as a fan of the podcast. Right, right, right. Uh, oh, I can't man, really support they're... a lot of what's set on it so that's all we can say listen Mm -hmm. fans that's all we can say we've already said too much again i don't know it's gonna be it's gonna be a limited time offer kind of thing like a two-week thing where it's available on this website they are very very comfortable t-shirts very very well made fit well i bought them i bought one from (laughs) another podcast that i like oh (laughs) my goodness what are you talking about (laughs) stop talking now what do you mean why are you buying T-shirts from other podcasts? Oh, it wasn't. A, like, it, yeah, you're we right. don't like other podcasts. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, was it? Never okay. mind. Well, no, it's just uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, question on how awesome the podcast is: Are we going to have a very special guest next week? A special oh. guest next <gasps> week. Wait, oh, I don't want to say too much. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But is that going to happen? I don't know. I haven't asked him. Okay, because we should probably be pretty firm, like, well, not like, but we should, I just want to make sure and have the time, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, if we... Yeah, that's a great idea. Seriously. Mm -hmm. Because I actually, yeah, I really want that to happen. That would be such a cool blessing. That would be cool. Let me think about it. Okay. Okay, now let's let's actually start the episode right now. Wait, (laughs) Are we going to start recording now? Dude, we weren't recording any of that? <laughs> no, we did, but none of it's usable. It's all garbage. What are you about? That's gold, gold, dude. That's absolutely gold, man. Put that's that in. That's some old school. Those that are some is... old school nugs right there. That's true. I'll probably come back and exclusively listen to that part of this episode. <laughs> An ad for a t-shirt that doesn't yet exist. <laughs> well, really, all of that's just a way of us speaking about how awesome we are. That's true. Which I recently got a couple of texts from a gal... I'm pretty good buddies with Sister Fidelis Marie, 
And oh, did I meet her at uh, C- You did meet her. <laughs> oh my gosh. She's a savage, yes. dude. She's a savage. <laughs> She's a savage Miami Jersey person, religious <laughs> sister. Um, uh, yeah, no, and she was. She I works with a lot of college that about students, sister, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, she's an incredibly lovely person, um, <laughs> a great friend. But she's been, she's actually been, uh, she does a lot of college work, and so she like tell her students about it here and there. So um, it's just nice to hear when people are listening, and pff, just affirms everything that I've always thought about <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> I think that, to be honest, I think people listen to our podcast. I don't want to talk about the podcast on the podcast, but people listen to it, I think, instead of listening to every other podcast or even reading books. Like we, I think about the service that we give to the internet, and that's to basically summarize and and distill um, all of the worthy content in the world, really. Books, movies, other podcasts. Including yeah. stuff we haven't seen or read. It's yeah. kind of like I, I used easy. to. I I would not watch a movie or something. Instead, I would just watch the Baron review of that movie to know what uh-huh. it meant. Like why yeah. do you, why do you even need to see a movie if you can just hear him tell you what it's about and what it means? Yeah, just tell me what to think. So I think most people just listen to us instead of anything else. Yeah, mm-hmm. hey, we could be the most comprehensive, mm-hmm. um, efficient summarization of life uh-huh. just internet science space <laughs> art um you name it theology even in philosophy of course <laughs> all summarized into one it's crazy yeah it's a good use of an hour yeah yeah man well right, I, so... uh, speaking of books um i'm reading this book and i haven't read much of it but it's you talking Perfect. about not having a committee meeting about the logo reminded me of something from it. <laughs> uh, so the King James Bible. Do you know much about the King James Bible or King James even himself? I didn't. No. Yeah. Honestly, no, actually. I've heard of it, but continue. Um, the King James Version is this kind of just gold standard English translation. It's from the early 1600s. Uh, I'm reading this book. God's secretaries. I can't remember the author. He's a historian, but it's for a book club of priests. And I never would have read it, which is great about the book club. You end up reading books you wouldn't read normally. But it's um, it's about this era when Queen, Queen Elizabeth died. So the whole Reformation was early 1500s. Um, and it swept across the continent of Europe um, really severely, especially with guys like Calvin. Um but in England, it was sort of, it was halfway done because the king sort of used the Protestant Reformation on the continent as an occasion to sort of split from Rome. You know, the whole story of Thomas More and King Henry VIII, man for all season, etc. And uh, thereby made himself the head of the church in England and kind of wrote, that's when the Book of Common Prayer was written by, I can't remember who, but um, anyone who's an actual English historian will find this summary of English history, deplorable, but, um, he struck a balance. Well, Henry VIII dies. And I think Queen Elizabeth comes right after him, uh, the virgin queen who never married. And she was the head of the church in England for a really long time and sort of set the tone of Episcopal religion. So there were still bishops, so there wasn't a Pope. Uh, she was the head of all the bishops. Um, and I think appointed them. And they had this sort of like, they had confirmation still and the sign of the cross. And even I think some uh, forms of Anglicanism, there's confession of sins and penance and all the rest of it. So it's kind of a quasi-Catholic thing, which is why Newman later on, like 200 years later, is arguing that England or uh, Anglicanism, Anglicanism is kind of a form of Catholicism, but the English brand of it, not the Roman brand of it. Anyway, he ends up realizing that that's not true and becomes Catholic. But that's why English Christianity is so, it's not like Lutheranism or Congregationalism, brands of uh, Calvinism, and it's certainly not Catholic. Like we don't say they have valid sacraments because they've they've split and they've changed something kind of essential about the faith. So James, King James, is the successor of Queen Elizabeth, uh, and he was born 
to Queen Mary, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, who was the uh, Queen of Scots and the Catholic Queen, who I guess was called Bloody Mary because she killed a lot of Protestants and she tried to make England Catholic again. I think that was her campaign slogan, make England Catholic again. Um, <laughs> anyway, she failed, and then Queen Elizabeth. So that, that was it. It was went Henry and then Elizabeth, Mary, then Elizabeth, and then James, who was Mary's son, but was brought up in Scotland by Presbyterians who were the hardcore, like anti-bishop, anti-institutional church. Like the only truth is the Bible and the, and the Holy spirit inspiring the congregation or the preacher, basically like the whole Protestant rationalist, modern Christianity versus sort of medieval sacramental Christianity. And where was she brought up again? Say that again. James was brought up in Scotland. He was the King of Scotland from the time he was one year old. And gotcha. So yeah. he didn't know anything else. And he always thought of England. At, he was just waiting for Elizabeth to die and really kind of saw it. He was the only really rightful heir. I don't understand how that whole thing happens of who gets to be king next and how they choose that. But he was the heir apparent waiting for old Elizabeth to finally die so he could go down to England where there was still like the king wasn't just sort of spat upon by Presbyterians who thought like, oh, worldly power is nothing. The only thing that matters is the Holy Spirit uh, and the whole and the Bible. And um, down in the Church of England, it was like, oh, if you're king, you're the head of the church. God has appointed you the king. And there's still a lot of that divine right stuff. So he was looking forward to that. He gets down there and there's um, uh, this split between what are, are called the, the bishops and the Puritans. So the Puritans, eventually the hardcore Puritans who want nothing to do with the bishops or the institutional church in England end up coming to America, start the pilgrim thing, um, have Thanksgiving dinner with the Indians. And now here we are. But, um, in England, there were still like James kind of thought himself to be this pacifier who's going to bring everybody to the table and let's, let's agree on cheese pizza. Let's figure out what the, what the happy medium is so that we can all be happy. Um, with English uh, Christianity. And of course the bishops want it to be pretty hardcore ceremonial, sacramental, institutional, and the, the more Puritan leaning people want it to be more congregational, more Bible centric, etc. So what ends up happening out of these meetings is the King James Bible. They say, let's make one Bible that everybody can use because the Puritans were using the Geneva Bible, which was written in Geneva where Calvin was. And the, um, official church was using this bishop's bible which was kind of a bad translation but it was very much like supportive of the status quo so let's make a new one and they made this they made these 15 or 14 rules the king did of like how the translation was to happen and interestingly and this is why it connects it was all seen like it was a very conservative project although it was a new translation it was meant to be like no, nobody wanted to be seen as the author of this translation. It wanted to they wanted to be as connected to the past and to the tradition and to the wisdom of the ages as possible. And the way that they did that was by having it done totally by committee, like in this really slow and plodding way. They thought the way to perfection in the translation was by having it checked and revised by as many people as possible. So that it wasn't like one person's interpretation or one person's ingenious um, work of art or literature. You know what I mean? As opposed to like, I feel like a more modern understanding. We have the whole thing like a horse or a camel is a horse designed by committee. Like mission statements that you've sat down and write with your parish council or something like that. It just ends up being the most gobbledygook possible because everybody wants to get their word in there. Um the King James Bible actually turned out to be a masterpiece. Um, I think I've never read it myself, but that's what everybody says. Like the works of Shakespeare and the King James Bible, which came roughly from the same era are like some of the best English ever written. Hmm. But that whole idea that, um, and it kind of reminded me of the whole idea of biblical inspiration, actually of the old Testament and how modern scholarship says it wasn't the Pentateuch wasn't all written by Moses, but by these four different sources over many eons and, preserved by oral tradition and then by written tradition. And I, I kind of see the way I kind of imagine biblical inspiration happening, at least with the Old Testament, is a lot of people over a really long time all just putting in a little bit until you get this thing which God has kind of written, only God could have written over all this time and space. And somehow it ends up being this masterpiece, um, even though one person didn't sit down like Mozart 
with a stroke of genius and and write it himself, um, which is normally how genius works of art happen. So that's what I got from the book so far, but I submit that for your contemplation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is that? Uh, yeah, cool. Did you know anything about that? Um, well, I guess after this era, after King James, James figures himself to be kind of a pacifier. But do you know anything about like Cromwell and the Glorious Revolution and stuff? Like shortly after that, England just goes into complete fits. Oh gosh, I hope Dr. Hilliard isn't listening to this. <laughs> I, know, I don't remember. I like I don't remember. Yeah, I was gonna say I've heard I think the name. Like yeah. yeah, I think Cromwell was the guy who he wrote the Book of Common Prayer that that they use and. Well, there's two um, Cromwells. I think there's an early Cromwell who might have written that, and then there's the later, maybe Thomas Cromwell, who's who um, kills the king or something, or does some kind of revolution. Yeah, let's let's cut this. This is why people mama. listen to the podcast. Let's at least Wikipedia. Wow. I, <laughs> I know absolutely nothing. Well, I mean, I I got from that I class. Got, yeah, but, dude, that was um, an incredibly uh, succinct. Yeah. Uh, summary of everything that you've been reading. Thanks, dude. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I, gave it, up, it I gave up streaming entertainment for Lent, so I've been working Whoa. on either reading or um, I'm recording more music, too, which is another dude. thing I've allowed myself. But, that brain of yours, that dog needs to eat, and apparently you're <laughs> letting it do it. Yeah. So No, no yeah. doubt, dude. He yeah. hungry. He's yeah. hungry. He hungry. Uh, so you basically... We're saying that like the King James Bible was done like by like by 50 pulling... translators. At a so time. similar to and then, OK, that was an interesting point that you made with like how so often like you use the example of like mission statements can just come out to mean nothing because they're so whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but like somehow in a similar format, like this became a masterpiece. Yes. That's Fine, interesting mm -hmm. to me because like, yeah, that is, I've always found that like, I just never, yeah, mission statements I just don't get, honestly, in a lot of ways. Don't we have a mission statement, don't we? Ours? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I can't remember. <laughs> it's so long and dramatic. <laughs> no, a painting was made by uh, it was. John Hughes. It was. Yes. Wait, yes. what? It was made by who? Uh, Joanna, who wrote, who made the icon of us. Yes. So oh, that icon is amazing. By the way, that, yeah, the icon is absolutely amazing. I'm gonna try. Um, to find, I'm gonna try to find this mission statement. That was, yes. that was a darling <laughs> uh, painting she made of the three dogs skipping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Anyways, continue. It's super, super good. Yeah. No. Um, committees generally. That's that's my point is that that's why I kind of see it as similar to biblical inspiration or inspiration in general, the way the liturgy kind of evolves organically out of basically like the upper room, the apostles, their experience of Jesus at the Last Supper and the resurrection and after Pentecost, like what, how all of that crystallizes into what we have now, like with the Eastern Rite and the Roman Rite and like how it gets handed on to us today is not any one person writing down like, you know, what would be a really cool way to worship Jesus is this way. Instead, it's over this lo long, slow progression um, where very little change is made at any one time. Um, but it's checked and slowly done by many people over a long time. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So... Yeah learning do you guys like That's learning cool. very much yeah. we are learning <laughs> hey, I, uh, we are learning stop uh, stop 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 um, i uh, am going to so i was reading a book over the mission trip um, yeah i want to hear about your mission trip yeah, not that this okay. is sort of interesting but because it's cool <laughs> i just don't have anything to say on it yeah yeah, I wish I had a a brain that could speak about this. Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I'm at. It's like, dang, that would be really cool if three dudes could sit around and we're smart enough <laughs> yeah. to talk about it. <laughs> and and but. quite frankly, like the the person who has explained the development of scripture 
in a way that I understood it the best was Jordan Peterson. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, he's he's I mean, kind of he an knows... atheist, though. What's that? Isn't he kind of an atheist about the whole thing, though? Yeah, so I think he obviously he negates certain elements that Mm -hmm. I think are necessary, but he has a a very similar idea that, ah, yeah, and maybe this would be a a helpful way to talk about it, but oftentimes, um, yeah, works of art or masterpieces are done by one person, and it's kind of just like this theophany almost of this person who's basically divinely inspired, and this is the way that he would talk about it, and then from this realization of something, they see something that most other people don't see, then this individual produces it. So it's kind of like this top down, like coming down from the heavens, mediated through one individual, and then they create this work of art for the rest of the world to see. Hmm. Whereas the Bible is actually a bottom up creation, so that it's over so many years, across so many cultures, and through so many different generations, that it's the common experience of humans, like trying to relate to God, and trying to relate to one another, and trying to relate to reality, where like, essentially, he looks at scripture almost as like, um, as an evolutionary biologist, which is what he is. And so like, over time, the wisdom that is inherent in the truth of life is comprised and built up working towards like kind of ascending into a mountain so that it's much more of a, a bottom up thing from so many different people. And then it gets thinned out and then narrowed and then narrowed. And then you have this, then this story that says something specific, but that it took place over, you know, just thousands and thousands of years. Well, thousands of years and, Millions of people, um, which is why there are so many truths that you can find, even if you're not a believer and necessarily um, even a monotheist, and specifically even if you're not a believer of Jesus Christ, there's still an immense amount of truth just because of the natural human development of it, that it it is a consideration of so many different cultures and people and places. Um, now, the thing that is missed is that... Um, it's not just an organic human development, but that it's a theandric creation of God and man hmm. that's inspired and led well, that's a smart by the word. Holy Spirit. Theandric. It's totally a smart word. I used that in my thesis. I was like, uh, dude, I got to use that on the podcast. That's a, like a blending of theos and andros, so God and man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, that's how I describe the temple in my paper, uh, this theandric edifice. Hmm. And which is such a beautiful way to consider how God... So that's like the Jewish idea, is that you know, before, um, before the revelation of a God who loves a specific people, who has given himself and revealed himself in a specific way, time, there was always this idea that time was circular and just repetitive. But that once God, who is good and chooses a people, enters into time, then it takes this trajectory that things are going from... Uh, bad to better or from from good to better that it's no longer just circular but once god enters into the equation things are different and they're moving in a certain direction because it's it's led by him and then of course that's that's come to its fulfillment in jesus christ who is the revealer revealing himself to us um yeah so that was just a bunch of rambling about scripture but but that's where he misses is I don't think he has the God component, which he would say like there's a divine spark in everybody that's unified and is moving the wisdom and truth of scripture in a certain direction. But again, that's where I don't know if he would say the personhood of God, um, like God is, is truly personal and reveals himself to a specific people and then reveals himself as the person of Jesus Christ. I don't think he would necessarily say that mm-hmm. the way that we understand it, but well, he kind of—I feel like he sees. Um, so, where, where are you getting this from? What book? His his book that he wrote, the Twelve. No, no, no. These are just on various lectures uh, that I've heard of. Yeah. So I read I read probably like half or two thirds of his book. Um, my mom lent it to me about the Twelve Rules for Life, and it sort of seems like his mo is, like for instance, his idea of sacrifice. 
is that um, this sort of primordial thing you see in every human culture of sacrificing first fruits or precious things to God or the gods is um, ubiquitous and also kind of like metaphorically uh, utilitarian. Like you can you see benefit about sacrificing something now so that you can have something later. So like, let's say the gods of the rains demand a certain cereal offering or some meat or something or uh, fertility ritual. You're doing something that's not beneficial to you right now sacrificing the present in order to get rain in the future or something like that. And that's just a human thing that makes life better. If you're willing to suffer now um, in order that the future will be better, you're more likely to survive and sort of like blending religious things and, and saying, justifying them like, yeah, well, whether or not God actually exists or anyone's actually listening or accepting these sacrifices, being having this attitude or acting this way will benefit you individually and corporately as a society and stuff like that and that's how these things evolve and so he's very pro-religion but it's sort of from the like the modern crossed arm stance of like well yeah um religion is good for people because of xyz so i'm in favor of it but I, of course i'm too smart to ever actually believe this stuff which that always feels a little bit like a cop out to me um yeah it's like you religious utilitarian right yeah, it, it's to create a moral person. It's very Kantian mm-hmm. in that way. Um, but it's not to create saints. That's exactly. the difference. It's to create moral citizens, not to have people who share in God's life, and which also is you totally have, way cooler. <laughs> well, that's why I, I take a lot of solace in a guy like Chesterton. If you read Orthodoxy or um, or especially the Abolition, not the Abolition of Man, that's C.S. Lewis. Everlasting Man. Everlasting Man. Mm-hmm. So good. Um because he does kind of see theophany or this uh, like sudden burst of insight or light into darkness. Like the two, two great events are the dawn of man and uh, the resurrection that like these two, I always meant to write a talk about this, the three caves, the cave, the caveman, like the cave paintings, like that human beings kind of suddenly come out of the scene as this freak who's naked and can't survive in its own skin yet is stands head and shoulders above all of the rest of nature and dominates it from above. Like you can't explain that, um, with science, unless you just rationalize everything actually interesting about it out of it and say like, Oh, everything's just a eminent, um, like accident out of the fact that human beings brains can throw stones more accurately. And that's why they're the survival of fittest or, you know, that whole evolutionary psychology thing that to me seems so flat, What's really interesting about human beings is that they write poetry, not that they can throw stones more accurately than monkeys or mm. whatever, you know? Um, so it's still question begging. You're like, well, why do they write poetry? Um, well, because of stones. And you're like, well, that doesn't answer the question. Um, anyway, not to get too into that, but the, then the cave of the nativity and the cave of the resurrection are these mm. sort of world changing watershed moments where everything is sort of like, business as usual up until this moment and then everything changes and then it's business as usual up until this next moment and then everything changes um and that's where chesterton just like shows through the evidence of history that something incredible must have happened some intervention from without had to have occurred or that's the most logical explanation um otherwise how does how does the roman empire become christian and all this stuff and he's smarter about it than any of us by god but you talked about that on the podcast like years ago yeah, i remember the three caves that. thing yep so. but um this book is kind of interesting like you're told bottom up thing rather than top down thing uh one of the difficulties in translating the king james bible was how do you reconcile like when new testament authors quote the old testament say luke quotes isaiah um a voice of one crying out in the wilderness or Paul quotes the old Testament. Like those guys didn't have chapter and verse in hand when they were, most of them just had it in their memory, you know, from when they learned it in rabbi school or wherever, or Luke was a pagan. So I don't know where he got, he probably just word of mouth um, or he's copying it off of the Q source or God knows what. He was probably taught by Paul. Oh, Luke. Yeah, that's right. Um, But 
their most of their quoting of the Old Testament, all of it, I think, is Septuagint. It's all Greek, um, the Greek translation, so not the original Hebrew. And and they sometimes misquote it. Like um, someone will say it's from Isaiah, but it's actually from Jeremiah or Ezekiel or something like that. And, um, you know, the famous one I think of is uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Wasn't the Hebrew in Isaiah like a young woman shall bear a ch- bear a son uh like the word virgin just means doesn't necessarily mean hasn't had sex it means young woman um but then that's this is kind of seen as like proof of the evidence of jesus's fulfilling of that prophecy or or you know like little modern critiques of of the new testament but there was one one person he quoted the author that basically said like the new testament is just this grotesque innovation um like, whereas the Old Testament is written by genius hands of like the holiest of patriarchs and prophets and these really eloquent Hebraicisms, then the New Testament is just these like fishermen trying to write Greek <laughs> that hmm. are basically half literate and don't really know the Old Testament very well and often misquote it. And um, this was, he was an atheist, this guy that was saying it, but basically saying that, like, how do you, how do you see the new Testament as inspired when it's so, um, slipshod and, and put together pretty haphazardly, you know, uh, and not for it. Like Mark's, I think Mark's Greek is really bad. Whereas John's would be very eloquent. And, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't read Greek, but I thought that was an interesting, um, problem. So they had to, they had to say, they ended up saying like, whatever it says in the old Testament, that's how you are to write it in the new Testament. If it's quoted, um, even though that's not really, if you just translated what was in the new Testament, you'd come up with something different because it's different words, but that's in contradistinction to your thing about bottom up, because here the new Testament just seems like this completely new thing that happens, Jesus. And he picks some of the not brightest guys uh and most unlikely heroes to write down everything you know and basically set the set the table for the rest of human history until he comes back which seems like a new mo god had a different way of doing things in the old way you know just an interesting problem i'd never really thought about before you know what i mean god is doing a new thing god is our god is a god of surprises isn't he you know he's doing it. You know he's doing it. Hey, did you find the mission statement? I can't. I can't find it. I was scrolling through old Facebook posts because ah. uh, I. Oh. I remember I shared something that Joanna had shared. Well, maybe. I don't know. Did you send it. it on email to us? Maybe. I'm not on the Facebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, hey, I I want to know about how. Actually, check out this transition. So, speaking <laughs> of the apostles. Um, and the early church yesterday when I celebrated the final mass for our mission trip to Columbia, boom, nailed it. Bomb. We celebrated mass in nice. the home of one of the focus missionaries that, that I went with and it felt very early church ish. Um, did you guys take your shoes like, off cause you were on holy ground and sit around the altar and everything? Oh yeah. We, and then we, we lit it on fire. We were like, behold the burning bush. This is a holy ground. Oh, it's consuming the table. (laughs) Um, (laughs) small house fire. It's okay. Everything's fine. I've made a terrible mistake. Yeah. (laughs) Not the best way to end a mission trip. I thought we were going to catch the world on fire. Um, and that was pretty corny. So, so, I celebrated mass for them, and then it was just a beautiful experience to be able to to actually send out all these missionaries back to their different universities and back into the world. But it really did feel like you whenever you whenever I celebrate mass inside of a home and you get just people of faith who like are really they were so amped up about the Lord, and you just circle around and like break bread and offer up the sacrifice of the mass. Um, it it does always feel like man the early church they had to have celebrated the liturgy like this in some way like this is they would have broken bread in a very similar way uh gather around and then get sent out to the to the various well not their universities but the various churches the various churches around the world um so it's a great way to end the mission trip from columbia which we all made it our group was 
totally amazing. Um, I love doing these mission trips, man. It's like I'm an addict. How many does this make for you? What's that? How many is this for you? Three? This is well three with focus. I mean, I've I've done quite a bit mm-hmm. even even before getting hooked up with focus. Focus is like my dealer now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. So we had students from George Mason in D.C. We had students from Pitt, from Troy in Alabama, and then a couple from Georgia, and then myself up here in Chicago, and. Yeah. It's just such a special time to go on, to do these mission trips that the Lord just seriously flexes his muscles in like this this unbelievable way and the students are disposed to it and have this great openness and the circumstances I don't know what I don't know what it is but like seeing difficult things or being in um, new situations that are uncomfortable I, it just kind of shakes you up in a way that um, I, I think a lot of the students are looking for like, okay, what's real here? And looking at the suffering or looking at what we're experiencing here, um, what can I actually rely on? And so it actually gives them an openness to experience the Lord in a new way. Because a lot of the stuff, I mean, Haiti trip is a perfect example. Like you just can't understand it without the Lord and the cross and the resurrection. Um, it's either that or nihilism and despair. And so, um, God was just really good on this trip. Um, and yeah, worked, worked some great miracles in, in the students and going down as a priest, it is so cool to have an inside look into all of that in like a unique way. Cause you get to talk to, um, the students and they reveal their hearts and, um, in a pretty privileged place. And so then as people share their graces, um, you kind of like you get to see the Lord's hand um, in in a very special way. So, yeah, just love the students a lot. We went down and worked with um, folks who have lived on the streets, our drug addicts down in Bogota and Colombia and worked with the religious community that does that basically full time there. And we would welcome the, the drug addicts in off the streets in the morning and we would do all these various activities with them like they had a zumba dance instructor come one morning or two mornings and so then we did like zumba dance <laughs> oh, <that's awesome. laughs> with all these like hermanos de la calle is what they call them like the brothers from the streets and it's just it's like some it's so r- absurd and just beautiful mm-hmm. like these 16 college students are doing dance Zumba class with like this Shakira (laughs) lady and like 50 guys who slept on the streets and are addicted to hard drugs and have been on the streets for like an intensely long period of time Mm -hmm. and basically walk in the shadow of death there at all times. Like they just think they're all going to die on the streets and they're okay with it. Quote unquote, okay with it. You know, like they've just resigned themselves to the fact that they're stuck in hell yeah. And there's no way out. That's how many of them feel. And so the real experience is to see them as people for for the students. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, this is a person. This is a person. And and that means that God loves them just like he loves me and that they have an opportunity to change and encounter. Um, and that actually I'm also sinful in a similar way, different circumstances, but in a similar way that they are their same problems are manifest differently in my life, but still exist within my own heart. So we got to hear a lot of powerful testimonies of the struggles of current addicts and then guys who had gotten over addiction. Um, yeah, it's just like hardcore, terrible, painful stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's terrible to see, man, these hearing their stories. It's like, it's kind of inexplicable. Um, they're stuck in a living hell and they know it and they can't escape from it. Um, what kind of and, drugs are they, are they finding on the street that are affordable? Well, what's that? Cause I remember when I was in El Salvador, I was, I was shocked to see, um, this guy standing in the middle of the road, not quite begging, but cause he was too, 
intoxicated, but he was, uh, I didn't realize what he was doing. Somebody who was my driving me told me he was sniffing glue out of like a Gatorade bottle. Yeah. And I had never seen that. And it was, it was shocking compared to, you know, like a, a drunk person on the street or something you're kind of used to seeing. Yeah. Um, it was so, it had so changed their countenance, their face. It was just like, wow. You know, the whole idea of like defacing the image of God that, that this thing had gotten a hold of them, but it was, you know, like, it's just a chemical. It's not like heroin or opioids or some like drug that's expensive. You just go to the shoe store and get this stuff. And yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. What did the, what did those guys in the, uh, that were in recovery talk about like as being the way out? Yeah. Um, so actually the, the order of the trip was our first or second day down there. We, there's three phases to the to the healing slash escape uh, process of getting off the streets, and we actually start, started with the final step, which is a a farm that guys have chosen to live there, and it's a two year process where they live out in the middle of nowhere and they do manual labor and have responsibilities and live in community and have like some sort of a prayer life. They actually. Man, it's super beautiful. But um, we actually we we began there, so we got to see the guys who had been like two years clean and hear their stories. And then we backtracked throughout the week and kind of got darker and darker. So then we went from there to what they call the ambulatorio, which is the morning facility where they welcome the guys after like a night on the streets. They'll welcome them in, and that's where we would play games together. We would pray together. And then they would eat, they would have some food. And then actually, then the first, so the step one, so ambulatory is two, the finca, the farm is three. But then the, the first step is actually coming to the ambulatorio, which the sisters would go out um, in the middle of the night and walk around the streets um, trying to find people who are living on the streets doing drugs. Mm. And all they simply do is ask to pray with them, to give them food. And then they just tell them about the ambulatorio. And they say, hey, in the morning, if you, if you remember this, to come and, and see us and, and like come and receive some food and, and get to talk to other people. And so it's just a simple invitation, which is, was beautiful, was cool to see because um, they've been doing this work for 20 something years and they know there's no coercing. You can't, the only way to get away from drug addiction, any addiction whatsoever, is to admit that you are the only one who can help yourself. Mm-hmm. And that no matter how hard everyone else tries, if you're not accepting of I need help and I want help, you can never, nobody can force it on you. It's like the, yeah, it's an immovable wall. Um, and so they, they're like coercion or if like trying to trick these guys to come in here or whatever is like a waste of time because they want crack. They're going to leave. Like you're not going to trick them away from crack. They're just going to go and get more. And so they, they have to get to a point where they say, no, I'm done with this. And I, um, and I really want to get out. So we got to walk the streets with the sister, um, sisters one night and it was very, um, just a lot uh see like prostitution uh, mm. people doing drugs like right in front of you and um just sleeping wherever in parks and um and it was a lot it was it really was a lot i got a lot to process there but um and then the next morning we would come into the ambulatorio which was cool because a couple of the guys that we got to meet in the streets they actually came the next morning and we got to talk with them a little bit and build some sort of a relationship. And then the farm where we began um, is once they develop a relationship in the ambulatorio with the sisters who run the place, they'll decide like, okay, if this person really wants to go to the farm, it seems like they've been clean for a little bit and that they really do have a desire to get better. And so then they'll allow them to go out into the community out there and live a pretty strict, like 
responsible filled life. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really beautiful to see the farm. Um, cause the guys are all in, like they realize you can't do it halfway that you have to, you have to be completely committed to stopping this lifestyle. Um, and yeah. And so a lot of their things is be a responsible person. So they have like a lot of little responsibilities that they do around the house and community that holds them accountable in a lot of little ways, um, that slowly then they grow in responsibility. Um, and so they had like 10 principles that they live by. Um, and a lot of it does have to do with the external order of your life. Um, being, uh, just constantly being worked on and, um, being held up as like the most important thing because the external order of your life will match this internal order. That Mm -hmm. is what you're actually trying to cultivate within. But like a lot of the things that it was built on was honesty with yourself, um, honesty with your brothers and loving your other brothers and like, um, being able to hold them accountable, but also walk with them and help them and things like that. Um, so it was very, very powerful to see. And actually a, a beautiful part of the third phase where they live in this farm is somebody gifted them this land and gifted them this property. And it's actually a converted stable. It's just a, it's a, where they would house horses. And so one of the guys was telling me, he was like, yeah, when I first heard about the farm um, and they started creating this place for the brothers of the streets to go out and get better, that... Uh, the thought of it was like, well, I'm living in a barn. Like that's, I'm going to be living the rest of two, at least two years of my life in a barn. Mm-hmm. And the one guy was like, yeah, but if I want to become a new person, like if I want to become like a Christian, like Christ, um, you know, he was born in a stable. So it's a great place for me to be recreated into Christ, it, like living in a stable, like, Oh dude, that's very cool. <laughs> So they literally live in a barn. <laughs> they live in a barn and they're so excited to be there because they're not eating out of a trash can and mm-hmm. living on a street. And um, mm-hmm. so it was just a lot of stuff. But to, to your question, Rob, um, they, you, they have to get to a point where they like they themselves choose this, that they really do want to get better. And that moment where they've just kind of had enough it was different depending on who you talk to. One guy, um, this is crazy, but he was addicted to crack for 16 years. Can I talk about that on the podcast or is that like, is that too much? Um, I'll just I say he's addicted can. to drugs. I, I, I think you're good. Yeah. I think you're is good. That okay. Yeah. I don't know if like if do children listen to this, is that too much or what? I don't know. Go for it. Okay. Just tell it. To, just say it. Um, maybe I'll just bleep out um, pretty much everything I think you say. I think, I think you're good. I <laughs> think okay. you're good. Okay. So he's the most intense person I've ever met, and that's coming from an intense person. <laughs> this <laughs> Who's guy, met some intense people? <laughs> this guy was intense before doing crack. <laughs> and then he got into like the hardest drug of all time. And the way that he would talk about it like he's been clean for 14 years or something like that. Um, and his eyes would just get huge and he would like physically describe, man, the transition within his body when the sun would start to set and night would come that his mind and his heart would literally like kick into the next gear. And it was like he was on a mission that his whole being like heart, mind and body was totally geared towards finding this drug and it, with the setting of the sun the night would come out and that was like when he lived he lived in the darkness and so listening to him describe that for a little while he went 16 years living on the streets and at times when he would come into moments of clarity he wouldn't know what year it is like he told me a story asking a guy on the streets not what day it is not what month it is what year is it because he was so fixated on on getting drugs um that's amazing i dude it blew my mind and he said like you go in the streets man these guys they're resigned to death and so 
they've they're stuck it's like it is the image of hell for me that they're miserable um they don't want to do it and yet they can't stop i mean it's it's just the do you remember the uh, do you remember the turkish delight that the witch gives edmund in narnia yeah yeah i I used that example the other a couple weeks ago with the devil and tempting jesus Mm. like the whole the the devil's greatest goal is to make you an idolater to put to pin your desire for god which is infinite onto some finite good to basically make you a slave so he can lead you around like a pig with a ring in its nose and then when you die mock you for all eternity because you've you've turned away from god for something that will make you frustrated and miserable for the rest of your immortal existence and that to me that is hell right there like 16 years so fixated on getting this drug that you don't even know what year it is. And every day it's just the same exact thing over and over and over again, never making you any semblance of happy or at peace, just constantly restless and anxious to get the next fix. Yeah. Oh, it reminds me of the guy at the, at the pool. Do you want to be healed? How long was he there? Like 27 years or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Anyway, but amazingly that guy, um, and he says it like some gift of the Holy spirit um, his daughter was born, so I guess like 14 or 13 years ago, and him wanting to be a dad was like the thing that kind of that snapped him out of it. Mm. Um, and and it's so absurd because like this guy's story, you know, which as I'm hearing, so he's 14 years clean, then 16 years on the streets, so like 30 years, essentially began with a little sister coming out. And with like a cup of tea of hot tea and a piece of bread that that w- that was how he started his story to uh, getting better mm. was just a piece of bread and a, and a hot cup of tea. And you're like stinking. That's so simple, dude. Yeah. <laughs> that's like and now I'm li- I'm talking to a guy that is 30 years or 14 years removed from a life of death and is so is so full of life like he started an old folks home and the dude is in fuego like out of control awesome human being um and it and to just see it all began with this little sister walking around the streets um saying like hey i have a i have a home for you because i think you're a person and i want to i want to be in relationship with you and that's that's about it with a little piece of bread and a little cup of tea that it started this whole process. Um, Gosh, that's it, man. Like that's such a beautiful, just incredible story. Um, and I think even I ask that question because honestly, I think I knew the answer before I ask it, or at least that's your answer. While a very intense and like profound story of that man's life and like your encounter with him. I don't know. They, I just over and over again, I've heard that from people is that it has to be like a decision on their own part. And then even when you were talking about the guys at the farm are just all in and like, that's just has to be there. I don't know how else to say it. I, and I think it's just, it's wrestling with like, you know, a story like that is incredible and true and very, very real. But there's also the reality of like people right here in like central Illinois are living that same reality of like they're living in hell and they don't think they can get out of it. Yeah. You know, and that's it. And so you just want to fix them so bad or you want to help them, you know, and it's like there is a feeling sometimes of like, why can't you see this? Like, why are you will? Why do you keep telling me you're okay? You know, when you know that's not true. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, you have to be reminded, I think on like each side of that, of like, what's that sister's perspective? Like how many people does she give that piece of bread to and like understand like in the person's own freedom and kind of like God working in their own life that like she can't be the one that saves them. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. And all in, yeah, and that's where like Paul's line, just in terms of the the why we do mission, why do we mission as a church, and it seems like obviously Paul's a good guy to 
to look to the missionary par excellence there. Um, the guy did more traveling before flight, like via boat than it's, it's freakish how, how much he traveled, like how much he really did mission in such hardcore circumstances too. But his line, Caritas Christi Urgent Nos, the, the love of Christ compels us like that. I think that has to be it or else you are going to, you're going to miss it because it's not our efforts. It's not, um, to go out and, um, to save everybody. Although we are instruments of that, that it has to be like the love of Christ that compels you forward because that's the only thing that will really sustain you. And it's the only thing that will also only change the other person. That's, that's the only thing that will actually work is the love of Christ that compels them forward as well. Um, and so to see her, like talk about a ministry that could feel like, it's not even ministry. Talk about loving people in a way that could feel like just stuck in a rut, like just spinning your wheels, spinning your tires. She meets the same people for 16 years in yep. the street. Like she sees the same people out there and yet she keeps coming out there. Like, what are you doing? Hmm. This is insane. This is the, this is a waste of time. If you're looking at it from a philanthropic perspective, you are wasting time. Um, but that's not what, how she looks at it. And so she's like bringing life and man into death, into darkness, like the Prince of darkness that we want to dwell in the light as Christians, you don't have to wait for the sun to rise. Like Christians are going to go out into the dark of the night. And this little sister, this teeny little 75-year-old lady, is just going <laughs> to pray with you. Um, and like just really special walking the streets with her and to see her fearlessness. And um, they'd always go out and pray the Our Father. And, um, you know, I was thinking about like, I had a friend that passed my first year of seminary and it struck me at his funeral um, that and I preached on this, one of the homilies while we were down there. Um, I had grown up with him praying the Hail Mary. Like we had gone to Catholic camps and he ended up getting sick and, and passed away tragically from um, addiction and things like that as well. And it was such a horrific thought to think that he died alone. Like he just died alone in his room. Um, but I prayed with the Hail Mary with him. And the Hail Mary, you know, concludes with pray for us now and at the hour of our death mm. that like he was not alone when he died. And that when we pray, that's that's very real, that that we are actually growing in relationship with not just the Lord, but the saints and the angels and that they really do accompany us. And so just the fact that this little sister goes out and says, hey, you have a mom. Why don't you tell her good night? just to say goodnight to your mom. Like I remember those moments of saying goodnight to my mom and just how special they were and how safe I felt uh, just as a little kid. And even you person who thinks you're dead out here on the streets have a mom that you can say goodnight to. And she's like, and she's tucking you in, in whatever way that looks like um, into your trash bag on the streets or into your cardboard box or whatever. Um, and like to actually believe the reality of the angels and the saints and the Lord really walking with people, even in the darkness. Um, just mission, it just illuminates that stuff and takes what we say in theory and oftentimes just talk about and just illuminates it completely. And you're like, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is what they were talking about right here. Mm. There is a, a world of darkness that people live in and in worship and and yet we're called to bring the light into the darkness and like i really got to see that and got to see the students impacted by it and myself impacted by it and hopefully translate what we're seeing into into our hearts in a way that that can be received and and that sustains us so um lots of just lots of great stuff um yeah, I could I could probably talk about this for a while, but it was a great trip. It was a great trip. I have two yeah. things and then I got to go. Um, one is your that whole idea of being all in at the finca at the farm um, and like the little responsibilities. Uh, it reminds me, of course, of the whoever's faithful in small things will be faithful in big things. 
um, like if your responsibility is to sweep or to like hang up the keys in the right place or, or whatever in a community like that, yeah, there's something about just the, the order of every little detail being so important to the greater or what you call the internal order kind of reflecting the external order. And sometimes the external order is all you can control. Like even if your internal state is totally chaotic and erratic and you, you're just oppressed by anxieties or attachments, temptations, like you can at least do something to make your world more orderly. Like I just make my bed first thing every day. I didn't used to do that, but I can't remember when I started. I remember Father Hennessy saying that like your first act should be putting some kind of order into the world. And it's kind of like um, the bottom up nervous system stuff of like controlling your breathing. There's very few things. We have a lot of automatic reactions when, when our like adrenaline goes up or when we're in fight or flight, fight or flight, our heart rate goes up and we sweat and um, all sorts of hormones are released. But you can control your breathing. That's one of the few sort of autonomic things that you can. And if you breathe slowly and in, in a controlled way, it will actually reverse that and control like higher level it'll affect higher level things and make you feel calmer and and all sorts of other stuff so that i i just see that as an analogy for life you know like when you uh, just like making a list of everything you have to do or cleaning your desk or your room or purging your closet full of of stuff like that you don't use anymore like that stuff is making you feel a certain way and act a certain way and it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that a bunch of guys who are addicted to drugs have to live in a very orderly way dependent on each other in for all these like physical external things so that internally yeah. they can be they can live that order and then the other thing is that that image of the sister giving the bread and the tea and like philanthropically that making very little sense but theologically seeing it bear fruit you know even in one person like this guy uh who's been healed for 14 years or is in recovery. You know, I think that saints like Mother Teresa or um, people like that that do sort of crazy missions, um, they often see themselves, like Mother Teresa saw herself as a great sinner. And sin itself is an addiction. It's a, a behavior that we can't stop doing even though we want to stop doing it. And it's it's this cycle and um, there's shame and like, why can't we get out of it? And I think like the whole Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps about how to get out of addiction, the last step is always help other alcoholics, help other addicts. Um, and it's, as I understand it, essential to healing and recovery is you have to help other people. Otherwise, you're going to fall. You're going to die because you're going to fall back into the self-serving, egocentric, narcissistic behavior that got you in that mess in the first place. But if you get up out of bed every single day and make your your top priority help other addicts to stop doing the addictive thing, then you will not do the addictive thing either. And it's just kind of a law of human nature that we we have to love, otherwise we will fall into self love and sin and and this like the the addict, the person living in a cardboard box addicted to crack, is just a really obvious image a poignant image of what we all really are which is addicts yeah. yeah and um so the sister i think the reason she goes out there and does that every day and why that's so heroic and saintly is because she sees herself as no different than those guys you know what i'm saying yeah. it's not an act of like i'm this philanthropic nice person and i see all these poor wretches out in the street and i'm going to do something nice and make a hospital that will solve this problem and look at these metrics of how many people have recovered no she sees herself as like if i don't help these people i will fall back into the same exact behavior that's causing them to live in this hell so let's all get out of it together and i'm going to yeah, do that by it, going out there it's a sinner acknowledging themselves as a sinner who, but who has been made new in the Lord and like that. And that's the place where she comes from. And that's the place where this whole order comes from and all the people who work down there come from. And mm. yeah, it, it is a shocking experience hearing them talk about an internal, the internal battle. I mean, they would talk about it. Like they would use the word guerra, like the war inside. Mm. And 
um, like, okay, the way that you're talking about it is super intense, and I don't know if I've ever had to encounter temptation and like fight it like that. But the good and evil that you're talking about that runs in your that's in your heart that you had to choose and that you constantly choose. Um, like I know that I know that same battle. I know that same battle, and I've fallen just like you fell. Um, and essentially, I'm the same as you. I just there are the circumstances and situations are drastically different. But that moment of conflict internally, like I have had that, and I know what you're talking about. That we we do share the same human heart there, um, and and so. I think that's the the relationally speaking, seeing the commonality um, is probably the scariest part because it's like, holy cow, this is a person and they're living like this, like me. This mm-hmm. is a person like me. And as a matter of fact, I've fallen. Um, I know how I've they lost got that there. battle before. Right. I, I know what you're talking about. And I thought I would have no idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um and like, dang it, I can feel the Lord doing the same exact thing in me. Um, so it was perfect to go down there during Lent. Um, yeah, and just to see how, like, the guys who who have overcome these addictions and are giving back, they would make us play the, the stupidest games. These guys, these are, you know, 50-year-old men. And we're playing these games. We're playing, like, hot potatoes, and we're passing around a chicken in Spanish, and you have to cry when you pass around this chicken and you feel like an idiot, you look like an idiot and we're all like laughing at each other because we're looking stupid. And I'm realizing like this guy doesn't care at all what anybody thinks about him. Like this guy was addicted to crack for 16 years and thought he was going to die. He doesn't care about any of that. All he cares about is living in accord with what he believes. And that's it. Like this is a dead man who has been risen to life and that's all he knows. Mm. Like, you think he cares what people, what people think, think about he's a him? <laughs> like, he's playing some stupid crying game. He's like, this guy ate out of a trash can for 16 years. Yeah, and now he's like, free. Yeah, this is a free human being. Mm-hmm. And just to see the radical transformation of the gospel embodied in the human being is a powerful thing. Um, and it's a hope filled thing. So it was actually encouraging. Um, and to see that there is hope in the men as well, the ones who acknowledge that they have problems and want to get better. So, yeah, it was a lot. That's awesome, man. Well, I gotta, I gotta go. Caritas, Christi, urgent nos. That's a good mission statement. Totally goats. All right, guys. Good talk. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing, Mets. Yeah. yeah thanks, what? Dude. Okay. Well, next time, I want to hear about you guys as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sure, sure. All right, guys. Take it easy. Hey, keep us posted next week. Will do. Have a good trip. See you. Bye. Peace. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.